0: Let's talk divisive concepts with Professor John Gravy. This is the Legal Impact Weekly Podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Here School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.umnh.edu. Being discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty you host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, John, New Hampshire recently passed the Right to Freedom from Discrimination in Public Workplaces and Education. It's the name of the legislation that was passed. Uh, right. It's been commonly referred to as divisive concepts, as that was language that was in the first iteration of the bill. Uh, you right. recently wrote an opinion piece on the New Hampshire Bulletin, which I'll link to in the episode description, that uh, will kind of dive into your interpretation of um, the issues that may come along with this new legislation, but to start off with, what does the uh, does the legislation in, entail
1: well you know it goes on it, it's quite jargony and goes on quite a bit but i think the heart of it is this it's basically it, it imposes speech restrictions on public employees within the state including i think most significantly uh, public k through 12 teachers there is a carve out for the university Um, And so these restrictions, for example, don't apply here at the law school or at the undergraduate campus. Um, These restrictions prohibit state public employers, including public K through 12 teachers from, among other things, instructing that persons are inherently superior or inferior to others, inherently racist or sexist should be discriminated against or should not attempt to treat others equally because of their age, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, creed, color, marital status, familial status, mental or physical disability, religion or national uh, national origin. Um, And so um, they are restrictions uh, on certain types of communications that can be made by public employees in the context of their work.
0: a big part of the argument that i took away from your opinion piece is the chilling effect that could happen from this legislation
1: yeah i mean um i don't think there are a whole lot of teachers out there and others in state government who are arguing uh, for racial inferiority or racial inherent racial inferiority or inherent racial superiority um and so i think there isn't a lot that's going to be captured within the language of the statute if it were sort of strictly applied in a judicial setting to, you know, a certain scenario where somebody thought there was a statutory violation and a teacher said no, no. Um, Although there is I think there is I I am going to call your attention to one piece of language in there. The, The law does say that no pupil in any public school shall be instructed to express support for the idea that an individual should be discriminated against, partly because of his or her race et cetera. And I do think that language is problematic in the context of a classroom discussion about, for example, affirmative action. Um, you might have a class where you're talking about affirmative action. Indeed, that would make a lot of sense because uh, the Supreme Court I think is poised to perhaps return to the issue of affirmative action next year. There's an interesting case on its docket that it's asked for additional briefing about involving claims by uh, Asian American students that the admissions process at Harvard University uh, unlawfully discriminates against them. Now, Harvard is is not a public institution, it's a private institution, but there are federal anti-discrimination laws that ban discrimination. And and so this case could become a gateway for the Supreme Court to say uh, a bit more about affirmative action if it wanted to. So I do think the statute could potentially reach, um, just as, as written, could potentially reach conversations that do take place, uh, or perhaps even ought to take place in in a high school civics course, for example. But that said, I think that the, the so-called chilling effect that you made reference to before is really the biggest problem with the law. Um, I've been a high school teacher. I've been a law school teacher. I've been a college teacher. And I can tell you that I say things um, that are often misunderstood, (laughs) you know, or not fully understood. And people will say, didn't you say that? And I will say, "Mm, I don't think that's something that I said, but that's truly what they heard. Um, And I think we're in a very charged environment right now, obviously. Um, And so there are maybe listeners out there who are sort of motivated to hear certain things. And I think that there is a problem under the statute in that a teacher could say, be talking about know structural racism or you know the legacy of slavery or you know redlining practices in real estate and somebody out there could hear that to mean um that these things are happening because for example white people um are biased against black people inherently that there's just a subconscious bias against black people that amounts to racism Um, And if those people um, hear that message, this statute authorizes them to file claims. Um, You can file lawsuits against schools or districts which violate the statute, and you can file a complaint with the State Board of Education, uh, which could then in in turn um, uh, punish the teacher uh, up to and including taking away the teacher's license to teach. Um, And that's what concerns me. Um, I, I think that the statute might be construed in such a way that um, that any conversation about divisive concepts to use that language from the older version of the bill involving race or sex discrimination or gender discrimination could be, uh, you know, could trigger these sorts of claims and these sorts of lawsuits. And as a consequence, I think there's a real likelihood that teachers uh, and others will just steer clear entirely. And, you know, my point is, I think these are important conversations to have. We obviously are, have not, are not, you know, um, in a period in our history where we've gotten beyond um, disputes about uh, racism. Um, it's, it's very much um, uh, something that I think to, students need to learn about our, our history and need to continue to talk about. And all viewpoints need to be f- freely expressed um, or, you know, all reasonable viewpoints at least need to be freely expressed, even in... Uh, a a setting where yes children are the ones talking and and necessarily therefore you know there are going to be some curbs on you know on on what topics are being brought up
0: now taking the devil's advocate i'm assuming that people that are in support of the bill will say that there's specific language in the legislation saying that historical context is permissible and would not be offending what the language in the bill i mean this would this ultimately be a short-term issue as soon as the first couple cases make it through the courts
1: yeah, I I I worry that the answer to that is no. For this reason, you're right, and I'm and sh- and certainly um, defendants, if you know schools or school districts or teachers brought up on charges would point to that language. But again, I think there's a great opportunity for for a teacher to be saying one thing and for students to be hearing another thing. And the fact is that you know being charged with violating your ethical obligations as a teacher is catastrophic in and of itself even if at the end of the process um you are found not to have you know committed a violation of the statute you know especially for teachers who haven't yet been tenured you know who are early in their career for example similarly being sued by a school or by a school district i mean these are not Institutions that are awash in extra money right now. I mean, being sued is expensive, and it and it you know diverts the attention and resources of uh, of administrators uh, to defending a lawsuit when they have their plates full just in terms of running a school. And these these lawsuits or these other claims also you know, raise the, the the prospect of you know students being called in to you know to testify against each other you know you know you you heard this what about what did your friend hear you know faculty colleagues could be asked to you know to weigh in on what they understand their colleagues to believe it it, it really it really could lead to a mess, I'm concerned. And I and and then again I think The problem is that in order to avoid that mess, there's going to be a lot of just steering, you know, giving wide berth to anything that could take us into one of these types of situations. And that's no good. You know, that's chill. You know, that's that's avoiding necessary lessons and avoiding conversations that really need to happen in classrooms across the state, in my opinion.
0: I feel like our, the recent treat lecture series that the Rubin Center co-hosted with New Hampshire Institute for Civics Education kind of touched upon some of these where the level of discussion that needs to happen in the classroom for a student to really take in history and understand it in context, whether it's in the time or how it impacts current time, it's important to have some of these um important discussions on race things that might have happened in law and not in law whether it's within society or other societies and being pushed against that is the people that feel like education should be very much from the book and and very black and white it's like this is just the the bare bones knowledge that was involved when it doesn't really help you think critically on why things might have happened
1: you know i i mean i think that's very true um um, but even, you know, e- even sort of traditional education would certainly say that that students need to learn about the civil rights movement exactly. and they need to learn about, you know, uh, Jim Crow and they need to learn about how that Jim Crow you know emerged from slavery. And, you know, even those become fraught topics. Um, and, you know, what's really different about this law, too, A.J., is that. Um, Ordinarily, the law gives public servants a little room to breathe. So, you know, there's a lot in the news about the qualified immunity doctrine and a lot of people think it's too broad. But the qualified immunity doctrine is a doctrine that protects police officers, for example, uh, from being sued and held liable in circumstances where they may have violated the Constitution but their violation wasn't so clear and egregious that we would say it was it was obvious to anybody at the time that that they shouldn't do what they did and we provide them that room to breathe because the police have really difficult jobs they need to make snap judgments and they don't walk around necessarily having read the most recent decision from the supreme court Um, this statute takes a very different approach uh, by it really invites suits against public servants um, and that's just not traditionally the sort of law that state legislatures uh, enact
0: yeah usually be like against the school board or the district or the school itself right
1: yeah and there's usually again there's room to breathe you know yeah. because um these are di- these are difficult questions and and there can be reasonable disagreements about what was said what was understood et cetera et cetera especially if there's no tape or if there's no recording of what happened um uh, you know um It's just it it sort of runs contrary to the to the notion that we we typically in in the law, give our public institutions um, and our public servants uh, a little room to breathe.
0: Now, I've heard this argument. I I don't know that I necessarily buy it. And I got a constitutional law expert here with me. So uh, what about the First Amendment implications? I mean, does is there any First Amendment protection for teachers that want to delve into certain subjects like this?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't have a we don't have a long tradition of laws like this in this country. So there's th- this is an area where there isn't a lot of law that's been made. Those who would defend the constitutionality of this law would say that, you know, whereas ordinarily speech restrictions such as these are constitutionally problematic. I mean, if these if these restrictions were applied at the university level, we'd have a First Amendment problem. That's oh, yeah. hundred
0: percent. That's totally different case. And that's the reason why specifically in those legislation, it says it does not. The university system of New Hampshire is not part of us.
1: That's exactly right. Whereas, you know, with K through 12 teachers, um, you know, the government needs to make decisions. And so um, about what's going to be taught. And in doing that, they have to make decisions based on the content of what's going to be taught and the viewpoint of what's going to be presented. So we understand that that's the government speech doctrine. So when the government speaks, it is not bound by law that ordinarily prohibits the government in a regulatory capacity from being uh, viewpoint uh, discriminatory or content discriminatory in the way that it regulates. Now, I still do think though, that there is some possibility for novel claims to be made in this area, because um, it's one thing for the government to pass a law saying you can't say these things and to claim the government speech as protection. But it's another thing I think for the government to pass a law saying, you can't say these things but perhaps knowing and or intending that other things are going to be chilled from being said um that idea of chill um is is baked into first amendment law with respect to a doctrine known as the vagueness doctrine so if a law can be understood to to you know to regulate speech that it in fact doesn't Seek to regulate, but because it's written vaguely, you know, it it has that external chilling effect. That's a First Amendment problem. And so perhaps there would be room for some novel claims under the First Amendment um, should teachers, you know, be brought up um, on uh, charges, you know, under under this new law.
0: I mean, do you predict this to be hitting any of the federal courts because it's a state level thing and all sorts of various states are kind of making this a national subject?
1: Well, you know, uh, yeah, other states are actually have passed laws that are that are even more aggressive than New Hampshire's law, and I will, I do expect that there will be lawsuits, you know, challenging those laws. You know, here in New Hampshire, no lawsuits been filed yet. these issues can be raised, you know, you can go to court if you find a, a you know, you find a, 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 you know, for example, a teacher or a district administrator or a student who says my First Amendment rights are being violated. You can go to court and you can go to federal court and raise a First Amendment claim, or you could wait to see if actions are brought against anyone and then raise um, defenses like uh, First Amendment defense or other possible defenses in response. So, um, you know, so far it looks as though, um, we're going to have to wait and see if legal actions are fired. Filed, pardon me. We're going to have to wait and see if legal actions are filed, um, in, you know, under this law, and then that may become the context in which law can be made. The you know these legal actions would um, be filed in state court under the law, um, but you can certainly have federal defenses uh, adjudicated in state courts, um, and it's not inconceivable that again at some point some plaintiff would go to federal court. Uh, and make a claim in federal court um, rather than in state court.
0: One final little angle on this I'm interested in is New Hampshire is very libertarian when it comes to how school districts have independence with regards to how the curriculum is designed. I mean, do you predict uh, any changes to how that is handled because of this legislation?
1: Well, that's, you know, this does run counter to the tradition of local control, which is is a sort of a cherished part of the New Hampshire landscape. Right. Um, and that is an aspect of this legislation uh, that is being criticized as well. Even um, people
0: on the left are like, wait a second. I mean, this is uh, even further than we were. We would think of doing it for other subjects.
1: Well, you know, that's the funny thing is, uh, um, you know, sometimes one's belief in certain, you know, constitutional principles like federalism can be put to the test when, uh, you know, you could be somebody who has a very uh, broad understanding of federal power. And then suddenly when Congress does something you don't like, you're suddenly a federalism enthusiast. And correspondingly, um, you may have, uh, you know, a distrust of federal power. But if Congress enacts a law that you like, you may suddenly say, "Ah, I think that's within Congress's power. So, you know, we have no shortage of examples of of uh, of uh, politicians um, not necessarily being consistent to their prior stated values uh, in contexts such as these.
0: Thanks for listening to Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.